In late March this year, a month or so after we got word of the virus spreading around the world, Australia entered its first period of pandemic restrictions. We all know what happened next. Flights stopped, restaurants and shops closed, and many of us started working from home. My name is James Whitmore, and you're listening to Econ19, a podcast that takes you inside the economics of the COVID-19 pandemic. The impact on work is the most obvious effect. In July, the unemployment rate reached 7.5%, up from 5.2% a year ago. In this episode, we're going behind the headlines to find out what's really happening in the labour market, who has been worse affected, and why things aren't as bad as they could have been. Jeff Borland is a professor of economics here at the University of Melbourne. Jeff is a labour economist. He studies how we work. I think the thing that drew me to, I guess, specialising in labour economics from all the areas in, la- in, in economics is, is that it's about human, about human activity. I guess I've never really been interested in you know, the areas of economics like financial economics or industrial economics. I've always most liked the parts of economics that, that are about human interaction. I think partly because, to me, it's where the really interesting questions are. I think the other thing about you know, labour economics is that such a huge part of people's well-being. On average, 60 to 70% of people's income comes from uh, labour market activity and we we know that you know you know far beyond that huge amount of people's um, enjoyment of life their sense of self-esteem comes from the, their sense of doing something purposeful in life comes from the work they work they do so so unemployment is where there are more people wanting to work than there are than there are jobs available economists sometimes talk about labor supply and labor demand. Labor supply is the the number of people who would like to work. Labor demand is the number of people who are employed or the number of jobs available. And unemployment is when labor supply, the number of people who want to work is is greater than the uh, number of jobs available. In Australia, we talk about official unemployment figures, but that doesn't always fully represent what's actually happening in the economy, does it? No, usually... From a social point of view, what what we're kind of most interested in is the total amount that people would like to work and the total amount of work that's available. And unemployment is one part of that in that, you know, whenever there's a difference between the amount that people would like to work and the amount that is available, some people who want to work just can't get any work. And so they're the people who are counted as unemployed. But there's another way in which that difference between the amount which people would like to work and the amount of work which is available is manifested. And that's something known as underemployment. So underemployment is when a person has a job, but they're not working as many hours as as they'd like in that job. And so if what we're really interested in as a society, you know, making sure that people can get all the work they want, economic policymakers wanting to make sure that we're utilizing all of the productive resources we have available. In that sense, what the problem we're worried about is overall labour underutilisation. And that's that's partly to do with unemployment, people who um, want to work but uh, can't get a job at all. But it's partly to do with underemployment, people who have a job but aren't working as many hours as they'd like. And you know, in the last 50 years or so, progressively, underemployment's become a bigger part of labor underutilization. That's because 50 years ago, everyone 
who was working was pretty much in a full-time job and working as many hours as they wanted to. With the growth of part-time employment progressively in the last 50 years, more people who are working are working part-time and there's always some proportion of those people who would in fact like to be working more hours. And what's driving the loss of work in the pandemic? Basically through government restrictions on activity, through people spending less on particular activities where they think they might be at danger of contracting COVID, the businesses that that provide those activities that um, the government's banning and that people are withdrawing from, they've suffered huge decrease in revenue and that means that they've reduced their demand for workers. And that's one of like the messages that's coming through from economists throughout the pandemic is that it's not just the restrictions that are causing the contraction, it's the people changing their behaviour and that means that even if we just suddenly bring ourselves out of restrictions, the economy is just not going to fix itself, is it? There's a variety of levels, you know, on which can talk about that. The general point is, yeah, you're 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 exactly right that, for example, even if we if we were able in Australia to relax all of the restrictions on you know local economic activity, um, we wouldn't bounce back to where we were in, in March. Are there people who have been worse affected by job losses, and who are they? So activities that involve social contact are concentrated in particular industries. So, for example, accommodation and food services, retail trade, arts and recreation services. So what we saw from March to May in the period when there were big employment losses was that two thirds of those employment losses were concentrated in the three industries that that I've just mentioned. What follows from that is that it's going to be the workers who are uh, most in those industries who are going to um, be hardest hit by COVID-19 during the period when we were getting these decreases in in employment. The workers who are concentrated in those um, industries are in particular young people. So young people make up about 50% of the workforce in those industries. And that explains why from March to May, even though young people only account for about 15% of the workforce, they accounted for 40% of the of the decrease in employment. We've also seen in this recession, in that, that period when employment was decreasing, that you know, there was a slightly larger effect on females than males. That's quite unusual because in previous recessions in, in Australia, there hasn't been such a large negative impact on females, a very large negative impact on, on males. And again, that's that's an industry story. In the recessions of the 1980s and 1990s in Australia, the, the negative impact on employment was concentrated on uh, manufacturing and construction, which were male-dominated industries. And so you had very large decreases in employment for males and smaller decreases in employment for females. Because in this recession, we've had impacts mainly on industries where there's more even shares of males and females employed, the, the impact on males and females has been more even. But actually, even sort of taking into account the industry composition, you know, there's been larger negative impacts on females than, than males. And so it's not exactly clear why that is. It might be, for example, that females have had to withdraw from the workforce more to take on, you know, for example, homeschooling responsibilities. Another group have been particularly affected are recent migrants. So migrants who've been in Australia for less than five years. So for example, in the first couple of months, the proportion of migrants in Australia 
Australia for less than five years, uh, in employment fell by about 10 percentage points compared to about 2 or 3% for migrants who've been here longer or Australian-born. Again, that's partly to do with industry composition, that uh, more recent migrants sort of um, relatively sort of more likely to work in industries like accommodation, food services. Also to do with the fact that temporary migrants, for example, are excluded from eligibility for um, eligibility for JobKeeper. And JobKeeper's provided a subsidy to employers to keep on workers who are eligible. So obviously, employers are going to prefer to keep on workers who are eligible compared to not eligible. And so they've probably been more likely to lay off temporary migrants, recent migrants than Australian-born or longer-term migrants. The final story about who's been hardest hit is a story about permanent employees versus casual employees. And, and there the story is that um, casual employees have been experienced much larger job losses than permanent employees. Seems that there's probably two reasons for that. One, one reason is that casual employees can be more easily um, dismissed and laid off than permanent employees. And then secondly, JobKeeper scheme uh, made ineligible casual employees who'd been with their employer for less than a year. So what we also see in the numbers is that while all casual employees sort of been more adversely affected than permanent employees, within the group of casual employees, casual employees who uh, have you know, longer term employment relationships have been less affected than those who had been employed for less than less than a year. They were more likely than other casual employees to be to, to lose their jobs. When we're talking about these groups of people, young people, women, migrants, are there any long-term ramifications for people who become unemployed? So, yeah, unfortunately, there's a whole set of research describing a phenomenon known as scarring. You know, scarring's kind of e- exactly like the word means. You know, sometimes you cut your finger and so, you know, it's sort of bleeding at the time. But then a month later, you, you kind of can't see anything there on your finger. The effects disappeared. Um, whereas other times you cut your finger and if it's sort of severe enough, you know, a month later, it, it will have healed. But there'll be you know, there'll be a mark there, a scar. So, you know, scarring is the idea that something sort of bad or adverse happens to you today. And that effect doesn't disappear. It stays, it stays around for some time. So that's exactly the idea of the phenomenon of labour market scarring. It's the idea that someone has an adverse experience in the labour market today. For example, they become unemployed or they have to spend time out of employment because of COVID-19. That's obviously a bad outcome for them today. It lowers their, their well-being and welfare scarring says that, well, you know, unfortunately, the effect may not just be confined today. It's likely that if you uh, have an adverse experience today, then that's going to cast a long shadow on your labour market outcomes in the future. So, for example, if you're unemployed today, it makes you more likely to be unemployed in two years' time or three years' time compared to someone who wasn't unemployed today. Studies for the US, there's not really any studies for Australia. Studies for the US say that you know, this phenol- the, the, the cost of scarring can be quite um, substantial. So probably the, the best and most recent US study estimates that if you happen to be trying to enter into the labour market, so this is kind of with specific reference to people who have finished their education, if you're trying to enter into the labour market at a time when the unemployment rate's three or four percentage points higher than 
average, which is about what we expect the rate will probably peak at in Australia in the COVID recession, perhaps even a a bit larger than that, that for the next 10 years, on average, every year, you're going to lose 6% of your your income compared to if you didn't have to enter the labor market during a a recession. So that means that um, summing that together, it means, look, in the next 10 years, entering the labor market during a downturn is kind of going to cost you about half a year's labor income out of that 10 years compared to if you'd been entering the labor market during a time when there wasn't uh, when there wasn't a recession. Depressing. All right, let's talk about um, policy. So the big centerpiece here for supporting workers is JobKeeper, a payment to businesses to keep workers on the payroll. Has JobKeeper done its job? Overall, yeah, JobKeeper has been an important and valuable part of the government's policies to address the COVID-19 recession. JobKeeper had several objectives to uh, underpin the incomes of households who um, would have otherwise experienced sort of large decreases in income because um, someone in the household becoming unemployed to try and increase the sort of viability and sustainability of businesses to ensure that they were uh, still around uh, or once recovery gets gets underway. And, and then also to try and preserve connections between employers and employees that would otherwise have been disrupted during the phase when COVID-19 was causing big decreases in employment. And it does seem that JobKeeper has delivered on, on those objectives. All right, let's talk about the flip side, welfare. There's a lot of discussion or some discussion among members of the government that welfare discourages people from looking for work. And that's significant now that we're talking about winding up some of these programs, even though they've been extended. Is that a thing? Does welfare discourage people from looking for work? Welfare might discourage people from looking for work, but it really depends on you know, the level of welfare and the type of welfare system you, you're talking about in order to know whether that disincentive effect actually exists. At the moment, you know, the big disincentive for job search is just that there's not enough jobs, not enough jobs available. You know, that's why in March to May, we saw so many people who lost their jobs moving out of the labor force. Usually in recessions, out of people who, who um, lose their jobs, about three quarters move to being unemployed and a quarter move to being out of the labor force. What we saw in the first couple of months you know, of the COVID recession was basically 80% of people moving out of the labor force. And that's them saying, look, I just don't think it's worth looking for work because there's no jobs there. I want to cast our eyes to the future. What are some of the strategies broadly that the government will need to think about to increase employment? Well, I kind of think about policies in terms of um, in terms of you know, levels or timing. I mean, I think so far the approach the government's taken, which is I think being completely the right approach, is to worry about getting the health policy right to try and um, you know, prevent and minimise the spread of COVID-19 because of the, the very substantial negative implications of COVID-19 for economic activity. And then they've, then they've adopted you know, very um, 
broad-based response to COVID recession. Programs like JobKeeper, which apply across all industries, apply across broad categories of workers. So when you've got a downturn that's been as, as extensive as we've had, I think that's the you know, that's been the right approach. Once recovery is underway though, we will need to turn from the general to the um, to the to the particular. And just to give you a couple of examples of what, what I mean by that. So so first of all, there's this expression that recovery lifts all boats. And, and that's probably true, but we also know that it'll lift them by, by different amounts. And so I think that we'll increasingly see that there are particular groups who have been most disadvantaged by the recession and are finding it most difficult to get back into work. So, you know, for example, if the recession sort of rolls out as previous recessions, then then the young are likely to be particularly adversely affected. And so we need to think about we need to think about policies to assist them. You know, another you know, example of sort of the, the, the particular is that we're going to need to do sort of everything you know, we can to get economic activity back to growing as sort of rapidly as we can. And so I think that means you know, thinking about implementing structural reforms that, that increase you know, labour productivity. So you know, measures that might, for example, try to raise workers' human capital. So I think a big one on the agenda there is trying to proceed sort of not too hastily, but sort of you know, relatively hastily to address some of the sort of big reforms to the to the training system that, that have been proposed. Another example, you know, is that the existing sort of job keeper and business support programs have been about saving jobs, preserving connections between employers and their workforces, which as I've said, I think it's the appropriate objective for policy when new job creations virtually disappear. But once recovery gets underway, I think it becomes desirable for policy to shift towards assisting or promoting job creation and also probably doing that in in a way that's targeted towards particular groups. So, So again, the young. So one idea would be, for example, hiring credits or targeted wage subsidy programs for employers who create extra jobs for young people or for other disadvantaged types of workers. So so I think the way I'd characterize policy making is that so far we've had these broad-based policies, you know, health policies to try and bring COVID under control, broad-based economic policies to try and alleviate the substantial negative impacts of the recession. You know, once recovery gets underway, we, we need to move from the general to the particular. We've got to start you know, looking at the particular, assisting the, the groups who've been sort of most adversely affected. We've got to start looking at the particular policies that can help us get economic activity running as quickly as, as, quickly as possible, improving labour productivity. And we've got to have policies that are going to you know, try and promote employment creation. The most obvious impact of the pandemic has been on the way we work. And as we've heard, it hasn't been equal. Young people, women, migrants and casual workers have all been hit hardest. Luckily, the government stepped in with some much needed support, but that support will need to continue for some time. And the most important thing is stopping the virus. Thanks to our guest, Professor Jeff Borland. Subscribe to Econ19 for new episodes. For more insights on the economics of the coronavirus, head to our website, fbe.unimelb.edu.au forward slash econ19. Econ19 is recorded on Wurundjeri land. The podcast is produced by Seth Robinson, Sophie Thomas, and me, James Whitmore. The theme music comes from Premium Beat.